Good morning and happy Friday. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for July 26th. In today's news, House Democrats argue over what to do next after the Mueller hearing. As Puerto Rico's governor prepares to quit, allegations about the next one emerge, and hate rears its ugly head in Mississippi. But first, the big idea. A recent tweet from Alicia Hernan, whose Twitter account described her as a wife, mother, and lover of peace, did not mince words about her antipathy for President Trump. But Alicia is fake. Her tweets directed at various people aren't from an American voter venting frustration. The account was what disinformation researchers call a sock puppet, a type of fictitious online persona used by the Russians when they were seeking to influence the 2016 presidential election. But this was Iranian operatives working from Tehran, not the Russians. They created at Alicia Hernan 3, complete with a picture of a blonde woman with large, round-framed glasses and a turtleneck sweater. It was one of more than 7,000 phony accounts from Iran that Twitter recently shut down. And Iran is far from the only nation that has, within its borders, substantial capacity to wage Russian-style influence operations in the U.S. ahead of the 2020 election. That means American voters are likely to be targeted in the coming campaign season by more foreign disinformation than ever before, especially because these countries have been emboldened by Russia's success. A new Senate Intelligence Committee report released last night found that Russia began targeting the U.S. election system as far back as 2014 and that the attacks continued into 2018. Researchers say a short list of countries that host online influence operations with a history of interfering across borders have the ability to impact the 2020 election. These include Saudi Arabia, Israel, China, the United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. Researchers for FireEye and other firms have reported suspected Iranian disinformation on most major social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google+, and others. In May, FireEye even alleged that U.S. news sites have been tricked into publishing letters to the editor that were written by Iranian operatives working from an office building in Tehran. The Iranian tactics differ somewhat from those of the Russians, who through the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg infiltrated the online conversations of a wide range of U.S. political constituencies, immigration hardliners, African-Americans, veterans, evangelical Christians, environmentalists, with messages attuned to the way those communities already were speaking among themselves on major platforms. The Iranian operation detected so far lacks that complexity and sophistication. Messaging is typically on a single side of an issue in line with government policy goals, countering Israel, for example, as opposed to multiple ones. But there are clear signs of shifting tactics in the accounts that have been identified by Twitter and Facebook. What's known may only be a small part of a much larger operation that remains undetected. My colleagues on the technology beat, Craig Timberg and Tony Rahm, report this morning that cooperation between the FBI and Silicon Valley has improved markedly in the last three years. U.S. Cyber Command blocked internet access to Russian disinformation teams during the run-up to the midterms in November 2018, scrambling their operations. Some researchers express hope that this rising aggressiveness may thwart or at least deter some of these foreign-based influence operations from interfering in the coming elections. All the major social media companies have now established teams devoted to combating disinformation, typically by identifying and shutting down networks of fictitious foreign accounts 
This trajectory from nationally focused to internationally focused disinformation campaigns, though, raises longer term worries about what other nations may have disinformation teams that right now are sharpening their chops on domestic audiences, but with an eye toward eventually weaponizing that against the United States. In addition to those with known foreign disinformation capabilities, there are numerous nations, Turkey, Egypt, the Philippines, Qatar, Mexico, and others, that now use such tactics mainly to influence domestic politics, but could pretty easily turn their attention to foreign targets. In a related trend, online mercenaries have begun offering information operations as a commercial service. Facebook just shut down 265 accounts from an Israeli company, Archimedes Group, for seeking to manipulate elections through social media targeting voters in Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. The company boasted on its website that it could, quote, use every tool and take every advantage available in order to change reality according to our clients' wishes. It's a brave new world out there on the internet. Be careful. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end this week. Number one, House Democrats are struggling to figure out their next move against President Trump after their highly anticipated hearing with Bob Mueller fell flat, forcing some Democrats to second-guess their strategy while aggravating divisions in the party over impeachment. And this is happening as the House leaves town for a 40-plus day recess. Several centrist Democrats seized on the absence of a major revelation in the Mueller hearing to argue it's time to end House investigations into whether Trump tried to obstruct justice and pivot to legislation on pocketbook issues. Many Democrats said privately that Mueller's six hours of testimony didn't help their case. Congressman Anthony Brindisi, a Democrat from upstate New York who ousted a Republican incumbent last year by fewer than 500 votes, said anyone who was looking for the smoking gun didn't get it. It's time to move on and focus on passing bills that can actually get signed into law by Trump. He's facing a tough re-election campaign. But that plea had no effect on pro-impeachment Democrats who were digging in, insisting that House oversight of Trump and his administration has been ineffective and that they need to be more aggressive, not less. In a closed-door caucus meeting late Wednesday night after Mueller's testimony, proponents tried to convince Nancy Pelosi to move ahead on impeachment. She resisted. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, a Democrat from Massachusetts, the vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus, called for an impeachment inquiry. As seventh in line to Pelosi, that makes her the highest-ranking House Democrat yet to call for an impeachment inquiry. Three other Democrats also publicly supported the impeachment process following the Mueller hearing. But what that means is that 98 Democrats have backed the start of impeachment proceedings, according to a count we're maintaining. That is 42% of the Democratic Caucus which means the majority members are not on board. Number two, the woman currently poised to replace Puerto Rican Governor Ricardo Rossello when he officially steps down on August 2nd after resigning in disgrace is also widely loathed by the people of Puerto Rico. Justice Secretary Wanda Vesquez Garcet is already drawing the ire of many Puerto Ricans. Just as quickly as the Twitter hashtags endorsing Rossello's ouster appeared, a new one has started trending. Hashtag Wanda Renuncia. Fresh spray paint in old San Juan has obscured the resign Ricky graffiti with new messages saying, not Wanda. Under the Puerto Rican Constitution, the Secretary of State is supposed to succeed the governor, but that position's vacant because the previous secretary resigned earlier this month because of his participation in the same lewd group text chains with Rossello. So then the Justice Secretary comes next. But Vasquez Garcet is deeply distrusted 
dogged by accusations that she's mishandled the prosecutions of members of her own party, the pro-statehood New Progressive Party. She faced fresh allegations of misdeeds from Puerto Rican news outlets yesterday, which she called false and defamatory. But many who continue to protest in the streets complain that her history is the only Secretary of Justice ever to be charged with, and later cleared of, criminal activity, along with her public spats with party leaders, delegitimize her authority. With a week remaining in office, Rossello has time to negotiate the appointment of a new Secretary of State with the leaders and various factions of his party, which controls both legislative chambers. Speculation about the names of potential candidates is less important than the criteria the governor and lawmakers set for a successor. The island needs a leader who can be confirmed by the House and the Senate and is willing to tackle one of the worst fiscal and political crises in Puerto Rico's history for the next 18 months, the remainder of Rossello's term. That person also must know how to navigate Washington with enough integrity to restore trust from Congress and among private investors. And they need enough popular consent to avoid a second and third round of large street protests. Number three, Emmett Till would have turned 78 years old yesterday. He was born just two months before Bernie Sanders, to put it in perspective. But Till, of course, was murdered gruesomely in 1955 at 14 years old. He was lynched after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. Fast forward to yesterday. Three students at Ole Miss were suspended from their fraternity house and may now face a civil rights investigation after an Instagram photo in front of a shot-up Emmett Till Memorial was widely publicized. One of the students posted a picture showing the three guys in front of a roadside plaque commemorating the site where Till's body was recovered from the Tallahatchie River. One student in the picture is holding a shotgun while standing in front of the bullet-pocked sign, his Kappa Alpha fraternity brother squats below the sign, and a third frat member stands on the other side holding an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Kappa Alpha suspended the trio after news organizations asked the University of Mississippi for comment. The fraternity, which honors Confederate General Robert E. Lee as its spiritual founder on its website, has a long history of racial controversy. As the author William Faulkner, himself a Mississippian, once wrote, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, July 26th. Thanks for listening. Today is the last day to take our Daily 202 survey. Thanks so much to everyone who's told us what you like and don't like about this show. If you haven't yet, you can go to WashingtonPost.com slash 202 survey. Thanks again. I'm James Hellman. Have a good, safe weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. Hi, it's Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's Presidential and Constitutional Podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.